Those of you who have been here know that we're in a series that we're calling Encounters with God. And this series is meant to help us be aware of the way that God confronts people, particularly throughout biblical history. God is a way of meeting individuals and speaking His Word to them in such a way that changes them. And we so far have looked at God's confrontation of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Uh, We've looked at how Cain encountered God and how Abraham, we took two uh, sessions uh, with Abraham looking at how God first of all called him and made a covenant with him and then how God asked him to do the unthinkable, to offer his own son as an offering to God and how that uh, revealed Abraham's faith and also how God substituted for his son Isaac a ram that Abraham offered. And now we come to Abraham's grandson, and that is Jacob. We're going to be looking at Jacob's life. As we do that, I want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. I'm going to pray and ask God to help us, and we'll get into our message for this morning. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have spoken to us and that you are clear in revealing yourself to us. And I pray that your voice would be heard and that your presence would be felt. I pray that there would be no question at all by anybody that meets here. There would be no question that that you're in among us and that we would know after having gone through this time and walking out these doors that, that you met with us and you spoke to us because your word was proclaimed. I pray that your spirit would would move in our hearts and bring about a change that is a supernatural change. And may Christ be exalted, for we pray this in his name. Amen. You know, Americans like to remember the Louisiana Purchase, and there's a good reason for that. Because we got a great bargain. Up until 1803, there was this vast tract of land that was under control of France. Can you imagine that today? A big part of America under control of France. And, and in fact, Napoleon was the emperor at the time, and he, was, he had these long-term plans to make this vast territory part of his empire. But he needed some money for some military campaigns in Europe, and so he made this, these negotiations with the American government, that ended up, the American government purchased the Louisiana Territory for less than three cents an acre. And that seemed like a, a big expense at that time, but now that region that we acquired from the Gulf of Mexico to the border of Canada, from the Mississippi to Montana, I mean, parts or all of 13 states, I mean, that is priceless. Now, that is a good bargain. See, we, we as Americans, we like thinking about that because we got a great bargain. Do you like getting a good bargain? I think some of us are, are real bargain hunters. But we also love not just to have a good bargain, we love to have the upper hand in a bargain too. And if we peel back the layer a little bit, I think that there's a reason for that because we, as, as human beings, are, are creatures that like to be in control. 
We like to manage our own lives. We like to manage our finances. We like to have control of our relationships. We like to have control of our emotions. We, we like to be control, in control. And I think beneath that, there's this belief that we can operate by, and that is that life works best when I'm in control. Life works best when things are to my advantage and when I could leverage my advantages to even more advantage. And if there is one person who lived by that belief, that is the character that we're going to look at today in Jacob. Because Jacob was a bargainer. More than a bargainer, he took bargaining to another level. He was a trickster. He, he was kind of a crook, in fact. I mean, this is the guy who coerced his older brother, his twin brother, they were separated by just a few moments, into selling his birthright, that is, this share of the inheritance, for some food. On what he thought was his father's deathbed, he tricked his dad into passing on to him the father's blessing. I mean, that is taking bargaining to a whole other level, right? And you'd think that a man like this, like Jacob, would be one of the bad guys in the Bible. One of the guys whose life is a lesson, don't live like Jacob, who ends up licking the crumbs off the table because he's been stepping on other people on his pathway to success. You'd think that Jacob would be all bad example, but Jacob ends up being a patriarch of Israel. In fact, Jacob's name, which was changed to Israel, is the name of the nation of Israel. And we have to understand that his descendants are reading this story right after they have been liberated as a nation and crossed the Red Sea and they're, they're gathering and organizing themselves as a nation. And now they're reading the account of their forefather after whom they have been named Jacob, Israel. And the question is, did we get to where we are now with all these blessings and as a nation, did we get to where we are now because of one man's trickery? Because of one man's cunning strategies? How did we get to where we are? That's what the nation of Israel needed to find out by reading this account. But I think there's another question that we could ask about Jacob, and that is, how is it that God changes a person from being self-reliant, cunning, strategizing, manipulating, to be a man at the end of his life recognized that it was all a gift of God? How does God change somebody what does, it take, what does it take to change somebody from thinking that, that he has it all made, he can, by his own wits and cunning, manipulate his circumstances to the end of his life looking back and say, it was all by grace, by the grace of God? How does that happen? I think the story of Jacob's life will reveal that to us especially as it climaxes in an encounter with God that is one of the most unusual in all the Bible. And so we'll unfold this story in three parts in an inelegant kind of outline. The first part is Jacob's character. The second is Jacob's crisis. And the third is God's grace. We're going to look at this in three parts, Jacob's character, Jacob's crisis, and third, God's grace. How does God change a person from being self-reliant to being trusting in God? So first of all, Jacob's character. Jacob's character just leaps out at us, and I'm going to do a flyby of his life leading up to the crisis in chapter 32, so you may just need to be attentive. I'll tell you what passages of Scripture we're from, but, but it might be helpful just to hear the summary of the story of his life up to this point. Jacob's character comes out with vivid detail right at the moment of his birth. 
Even, even before Jacob was born, his mother was aware that she was having twins, and the twins were wrestling inside of her. With this wrestling match, they would, they would escalate into this bitter rivalry in, as adults. And when they were born, Esau comes out first, but Jacob is right behind grabbing Esau by the heel. And so, Jacob's name actually comes from a Hebrew word that sounds like the, the Hebrew word heel, but it also sounds like a word meaning supplanter or usurper, heel snatcher, trickster. And so, Jacob's very name means that he is one who seeks to supplant, to usurp. And Jacob's first opportunity to live up to this identity Heel snatcher, usurper, supplanter. His first opportunity was at a time when he was strong and his brother Esau was weak. Esau had been out hunting, absolutely famished. Esau comes from the field and Jacob is stirring a pot of stew, the fragrance of which is making Esau feel even more famished and faint. And Esau comes up to Jacob and he says, please give me some of that stew. I could just see Jacob stirring it. And Jacob's swift reply tells us that he has been, the plan that he's been cooking up, he's been cooking up longer than he's cooking the stew because he says right away, sell me your birthright. The birthright, as I mentioned earlier, was the share given to the oldest son, and it could be up to two-thirds of the family inheritance. So this was a really big deal, and Jacob had been thinking about this for some time. He'd been looking for his opportunity to be the heel snatcher, as he had from his birth. He had been looking for his opportunity to be the usurper. So he says, sell me your birthright now. Esau's thinking, what good is a birthright, what good is a birthright if I'm dead? The Bible tells us that thus Esau despised his birthright. That is, he treated it much less of much less value than he should have. And so Jacob said this, swear to me now. Jacob knows that if Esau has much more time to think about this, then he's probably going to come to his sense and realize this is not a good deal. Jacob has the advantage. He takes advantage of Esau. Esau swears to him. The deal's in the bag. Jacob has the birthright. Supplanter, usurper, trickster heel snatcher, Jacob. Now, he has another opportunity to live up to his identity, and that is in chapter 27 when he conspires with his mother at the instigation of Rebekah. This is Genesis chapter 27. To trick his father into passing on to him the family blessing. And you know how this story works out. Jacob or rather, the, the father, Isaac, thinks he's going to die soon. He's blind, so he sends out his older son, Esau, to go hunting and bring back some food for him so he could eat it and bless him. And Rebecca is listening to the curtains of the tent, and she hears this, and she's thinking, I want my favorite son, Jacob, to get the blessing. So she says, Jacob, quick, I'm going to prepare a meal for your father. It's going to taste just like this wonderful venison that he loves to eat. And, and so she prepares it. And she puts this goat skin on Jacob's arms because Jacob was a very smooth man and Esau was a very hairy man. And she realized that if, if Isaac reaches out and, and feels him, then he's going to know who it is. And so he disguises himself and he puts on Esau's clothes, which smell a little different than Jacob's clothes, just by nature of what he did. They, he smells different. He, he feels different. Knowing that the father is blind, he comes in and Isaac is suspicious. But eventually when Isaac smells the smell of the field on Jacob's clothes, 
He thinks it's his older son and blesses him. Shortly thereafter, Esau comes in ready to receive the blessing and realizes that he has been cheated a second time. And with these two episodes, we have this clear picture of Jacob's character. He has lived up to his name, Jacob, heel snatcher, supplanter, usurper. But he is now going to try his biggest bargain of all. And that is what we find in Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28. See, Jacob, because he fears Esau, and because his father instructs him to get a wife from among their distant relatives, is leaving. You see, in verse 10 of chapter 28, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night. And as he stays there, you know the story, Jacob has this dream, a vision, and in that vision he sees this ladder or some sort of staircase connecting heaven and earth and angels going up and down, and God speaks to him. You see this in verse 13, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Notice God's promises to Jacob, the land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. You think Jacob deserved that promise? How does a trickster, how does a bargainer hear an unqualified promise like that. He hears it as a deal. How do I know this? Look at his response. Does his response reveal that he accepted God's promise? Does his response reveal at all that he had any sense that God was saying, I'm going to bless you and there's nothing that you could do to bargain with me or to leverage this or use your wily tactics with me? Look at Jacob's response. This is in verse 20. Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, was God's word not good enough? And will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. How generous. I say that facetiously. I mean, God has promised Jacob everything he needed more than just food, more than just returning safely with his life, God says, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to multiply your descendants, and they're going to inhabit this land. And Jacob says, okay, if, you, if I get back here alive, and I have something to wear and something to eat, then I'm going to give you back a tenth of everything that I have. That wasn't the promise. In this statement of shocking conceit, Jacob actually tries to bargain with God. He lives up to his character, up to his name, up to his identity, the heel snatcher, the supplanter, the usurper. And now, at this point, after Jacob tries to make this deal, things begin to change for Jacob. He begins to get a taste of his own medicine. Chapter 29, we realize that ja we learn that Jacob, he meets his uncle Laban and his daughter Rachel, who is beautiful, falls in love with Rachel, wants to marry her, and agrees to work for seven years before he marries her. 
And then, after seven years, Jacob says, okay, my time's up. Give me my wife. Under the cover of darkness, Rachel gets swapped for her sister Leah. This was a cruel but very convenient trick by Laban because what it did, it got both daughters married off to one man and bought him another seven years of work. And besides that, bound Jacob to continue to work for him for even longer. So you see that Jacob the supplanter, Jacob the usurper, the trickster, is getting a taste of his own medicine in that his, he gets tricked by his uncle Laban. And further, Laban begins uh, manipulating the wages that he agreed to pay for Jacob. And so finally, in chapter 31, Jacob has had enough. As we see Jacob's character developing, we see that he's getting a taste of his own medicine. Jacob decides, he, he tell, reports to his wife in verse 3, that the Lord had said to him, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. And so he agrees. He, he decides to leave Laban and go back home. As he, he begins to travel in chapter 32, in verse 6, on his way back, he gets some terrible news. This is what was read to us earlier in the service. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and here it is. He is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Up to this point, for Jacob, well, before he met Laban, his trickery had worked. He had learned that life works best when you leverage your own advantage. And now it seems that all of Jacob's trickery, all of his cunning is like a boomerang coming right back at him. You see Jacob's character very clearly, and now we're moving into Jacob's crisis. Jacob's crisis. All the things that Jacob had thought would work for him and would make life happen and successful for him, he realizes is crumbling. It's crumbling in his fingers. It's like a boomerang coming back to him. He's realizing this hasn't worked. I've gotten a taste of my own medicine, and now it seems that, that Esau, who wanted to kill me because I had cheated him twice, Jacob no doubt remembered the look on Esau's face. No doubt he heard the rumors before he left that Esau wanted to kill him. And no doubt he heard the piercing cries of Esau within the curtain of the tent saying, Please bless me too, my father. And to hear his father's elderly voice, I've given all the blessing to Jacob. Oh, Esau had reason to kill Jacob. This is Jacob's crisis. And up to this point, we've done this very quick flyby of Jacob's character. But as we look at, at Jacob's crisis, we're going to slow down and we're going to zoom in here. And we see there are three components of Jacob's crisis. And the first one we see in verse 7 of chapter 32. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. There is fear. Have you ever been afraid? Jacob feared not only Esau, not only losing his life, but he now had the lives of his family with him, of his servants. He had livestock with him. And besides just the threat of the loss of life, in Jacob's mind, no doubt, there is the memory of the promise of God that he had made to him. What would happen to that? If it would be snuffed out at the rage of his vengeful brother, Jacob is afraid. Fear is a component of his crisis. 
And take a moment to think what you're afraid of, what you're afraid about. What makes you fear? What's the stuff of your nightmares? Really, there is only one fear that eclipses any other fear. And that is the only legitimate fear, and it's the fear of what God will do to you because He's holy and you're not. It is a terrifying thing, the Bible tells us, to fall into the hands of a living God. There's nothing else that really should strike fear into anybody. The Bible teaches us that God is indignant with the wicked every day. And when we consider God, even in the series, this is in encounters with God. We have, can have no encounter with God without realizing that He is holy. He's in a category of His very own. And any time a human being has an encounter with God, there is this realization that there is a God and I am not that God. And that can be a terrifying thing. Yeah, Jacob is afraid of his brother Esau, but he has so much more to fear. But there's another component of Jacob's crisis, and that is self-awareness. And we see his self-awareness revealed in his prayer. In verse 9, he said this, And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, we're in chapter 32, verse 9, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. Here are some words that we thought we would never hear from Jacob. Look at verse 10. I am not worthy. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Jacob is saying, I'm not worthy of anything. Up to this point, Jacob would be leveraging, bargaining, dealing, trying to work something out. And now Jacob admits, I have no bargaining power. I never did. I'm not worthy of anything that you've given me. There's self-awareness. Haven't we said that this is a component of having an encounter with God? It's not only that God reveals Himself to us for who He truly is in all His holiness and righteousness and majesty and splendor, but He also lays us absolutely exposed and naked before Him. This is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about, that all things are naked and open under the sight of Him to whom we must give account. This is what happens to us when we realize who God is. We realize who we are. We have this new self-awareness and the self-awareness that washed over Jacob was the awareness of his own unworthiness. Up to this point, Jacob's arrogance was like a blindfold covering his eyes. He had, he had made his life work his way, like he had managed. He had, he had gotten it done by his own tactics. And now it's all falling apart, and he's aware that nothing he did or could do had been really effective. And for the first time, I believe that Jacob is realizing who he is. He realizes that it was God's steadfast love and faithfulness. He realizes and finally quits bargaining. Instead of trying to make some cheap offer to God, he finally depends on God's word alone. Verse 12, he says to God, but you said I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Not, here's what I can offer you in exchange for your blessing, but, but this is just what you promised to me. The components of Jacob's crisis are his self-awareness, his fear, and then third, his solitude. Solitude. You notice this in verse 22 of chapter 32. The same night... 
he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. See, ever, ever resourceful, Jacob had sent droves of animals in advance as a gift to appease his brother Esau. And now, fearing for his safety, he takes his family and he puts them across this, this stream, and then he himself crosses it. And for the first time, he's all by himself, solitude. It's fascinating to realize that there's a play on words here. The, the word for the stream, the name of the stream, it's not just thrown in here as an extra detail. There is meaning to it. Yabok is the name. It sounds almost like the Hebrew name Jacob. But Yabok, it means, it comes from a word meaning to empty out. And Jacob, after crossing Yabok to empty out, is finally emptied out. He has nothing. There's solitude. He's by himself. And this is a part of Jacob's crisis. Have you ever noticed that people just hate being alone? You might say, oh, I'd love to be alone. <laughs> I'd love to have a little time just by myself. Now, I, I, mean, I mean alone with only your thoughts, without anything to distract you. I came across a study that had been done, a kind of a psychological study in which these people were doing an experiment and they, they offered to people to sit in a room all by themselves, no phone, no laptop, nothing to read, they weren't allowed to fall asleep, nothing to do, just one thing, just one option. And that was a button that would give them an electric shock if they pressed it. And they, they told the people before they went in the room, say, hey, would you like to press this button and see how, how it feels? And as soon as the person pressed the button to see how it feel, felt, they would say, I would pay money not to feel that again. You know what happened when they put people in that room with the only thing they had to do was to press a button to get an electric shock? People pressed the button to get an electric shock. <laughs> they want to do something. They, they couldn't stand to just have no distractions with nothing to do. There's something about being alone with our thoughts that makes us very afraid. Some people have suggested that the reason why is because we try to distract ourselves from thinking about our real condition. There is, in Jacob's crisis, there's fear, there's self-awareness, there's solitude. Remember earlier in this series we said that when God confronts a person, He doesn't wait for that person to tidy up, clean up their act, change. God, God confronts us right in the middle of all this crisis. God comes to us and speaks to us right in our fear, right in our self-awareness, right in our solitude, and that's when God confronts us, and that's when God confronted Jacob, and, and that's the crisis that Jacob came to. It's right in the middle of our circumstances. It could be right here in this room that God is confronting you. There's something you're afraid of. There's some new self-awareness. You, you've realized something about yourself because of who God is, and, and you've come to a place where all you have is, is you and your own thoughts. But this is where God's grace comes in. We've looked at Jacob's character, and we've looked at Jacob's crisis 
And now we see God's grace. And at first, it doesn't seem like God's grace because right after Jacob is left alone, you see this in verse 24, he begins a wrestling match. This comes as a complete surprise to us. You see that in verse 24 of chapter 32. He took everything, he took them, everything he had, sent them across the stream. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the break of day. The wrestling match was the last thing that Jacob expected. It was the least thing that he wanted, but it was the very thing that he most needed because this would be the way that God would show his grace to Jacob. You could imagine the, this conflict between this Jacob and this individual that he meets, that Jacob in the darkness uh, does not know who it is, but all, all he knows is that he's suddenly caught into this hand-to-hand combat, and there's, there's panting and struggling and rolling in the sand and, and crying and holding and everything that goes into wrestling, and, and it goes on and on, and, and finally, it goes on until the eastern horizon begins blushing pink at the scene of this, this wrestling. It's undecided until, look at verse 25, the man saw that he did not prevail Against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. What happened there? I mean, the hip, the hip socket is the largest joint in the human body, and it must support the weight of everything above it, and it has to have the sort of mobility to, uh, to rotate freely. It takes a significant amount of force to dislocate that, that joint. And yet, how did Jacob's hip get thrown out of joint? It was just by a touch. It wasn't a car accident. It was a fall from a ladder. It was just the touch of this individual with whom he was wrestling that put this out of joint. And at that moment, you see, the man says this in verse 26, Let me go, for the day has broken. Picture this. Jacob was wrestling with somebody. The conflict is undecided until whoever he's wrestling with has such power that with a mere touch, Jacob's hip is put out of joint, and then the sun rises. Jacob can finally see that whoever he's wrestling with is no mere man and has such strength that there is no way that Jacob can defeat him. We realize, understand later that Jacob identifies this as having wrestled with God. Hosea says that this was an angel. It must be an angel as God's representative that came to wrestle with Jacob and to make him realize his complete weakness. This is the grace of God at work in the life of Jacob. You see, finally Jacob recognizes God's work in his life. Up until this point, what has Jacob's identity been? It's been the wrestler, the supplanter, the heel snatcher, the usurper. That's been his identity, and he's lived up to it. And he has been the God of his own life. And now finally, Jacob recognizes that the person with whom he's been wrestling, his conflict has not been with Esau. His conflict has not been with his father Isaac. His conflict, his wrestling hasn't even been with his his trickster uncle Laban. Ultimately, Jacob is wrestling with God. And he finally sees this. 
And notice carefully what happens next. After recognizing this, the person with whom Jacob is wrestling asks him a question. Or Jacob, Jacob, first of all, says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is Jacob doing here? It could be possible for us to think that Jacob has some advantage over the person that he's wrestling with. Jacob has no advantage here, to be clear. This, this person has just touched Jacob and put his hip out of joint. Jacob has no advantage. But Jacob is clinging to him, and he's saying, I won't let you go until you bless me. This is not the, the clinging of so, having someone in a wrestling mood, hold, okay? This is the clinging of a little child clinging to his father saying, please, don't let me go. He has no advantage over him. All he's doing is finally begging, finally crying. Hosea tells us that he is weeping. He's finally realized who he is and who God is, that he has no bargaining power over God. And then he has an opportunity to confess. He says to him in verse 27, what is your name? He said, Jacob. What did, what did Jacob have to confess there? What is your name? What's your identity? Who have you been up to this point? How have you lived? He has to verbalize it. The usurper. Heel snatcher. The trickster. God's grace is at work in our lives, getting us to confess finally who we are. That our own efforts to establish our own identity are not working. And God says, you need to confess. This is what the angel did when he asked Jacob his name. He finally confesses. But here, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Why? How do we see this? Because he says to him, no longer, no longer will your name be Jacob. This is the grace of God in allowing us to recognize God for who He is, but also in changing our identity. No longer will you be the manipulator. No longer will you be this cunning supplanter. I'm going to give you a new name, God says. A new identity. Israel, you have striven with God and man and have prevailed how has Jacob prevailed? Not because he had the strength to, because his weakness was just proven, but because he finally admitted his weakness. Just like God said to the Apostle Paul, he said that my strength is made perfect in weakness, and therein his grace is sufficient. This is what Jacob was learning. He realized his true weakness. He realized who God was. And finally, he is able to receive his blessing. And there, the Bible tells us in verse 29, he blessed him. Jacob simply recognized who he was wrestling with. He confessed who he was and received the blessing. Not because he bargained for it, but because he received it by faith. This, this idea of someone receiving simply by faith what God is offering them. This is not isolated to this story here that reaches its crisis in the life of Jacob. But this is a theme all throughout Scripture, that God's blessing is not something that we coerce from God. Many people have this idea that God, God's blessing and God's goodness is something that we must pry God's hands off of so we can get it for ourselves. That's not the case at all. 
God's blessing and God's goodness is something that we only receive by faith because we can't earn it, because we have to recognize, like Jacob did, that that we are utterly unworthy. This is what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount, the very first beatitude. He said, blessed are the, what? Do you know it? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who realize that they have no righteousness in themselves, no goodness in themselves, no bargaining power with God. Blessed are those who come before God and say, God, I'm empty. I've crossed the ford, Yabok. I am completely lonely, and I have nothing to offer you. I receive by faith what you offer to me. That's how God's grace comes. That's what grace is. It's unmerited favor. That's what Jacob had to learn, and that's what we have to learn. As we look at the story of Jacob, we realize we initially think that we're looking through the window of history, and we realize that we're looking in the mirror of God's Word right back at ourselves. How we love a bargain. How we love to have the advantage. How we must realize that we have absolutely none. That we are poor in spirit. The question that I asked at the beginning is, how does God change a person from a self-reliant, cunning trickster like Jacob to becoming someone who at the end of his life says, God has been my shepherd this entire time? How does God do it? God shows people that His grace is not earned, not bargained, not coerced, but just received. It's received by humble faith. For those of us who have believed in Jesus, we need to be reminded of this. It's like that song that says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. But I believe that there may be someone here, and you've, if, as we've had the summary of the life of Jacob, you're thinking, I'm a lot like Jacob. I've tried to create my own, my own identity, I've tried to make life work my way. And I'm seeing now that it's all crumbling to pieces. That you're at a point right now where you need to face your fears. Perhaps even you've been left all alone. My friend, it is there that you can receive the grace of God. You're not going to receive it in a wrestling match like Jacob did. But here's where you're going to see the grace of God. The outpouring of God's grace was in a place called Mount Calvary, a hill where Jesus Christ died on the cross. It's the only place where you can recognize God for who He is because there's no other place other than at the cross of Christ where He died that God reveals Himself as completely holy and completely loving. And there is no other place that you could recognize who you really are, and that is completely unworthy, emptied, but also more loved than you could ever hope. Because when Jesus died on the cross, it was God's way of demonstrating both our sinfulness because Jesus had to die for us, but also God's love for us. And that's how God changes a person. That's how God changes a person from being self-reliant on our own strategies, on our own tactics, to someone who says, God, I receive your grace because of what Jesus has earned for me. 
And there's only, there's only one thing for you to do for, to that. It's th- that is to accept what Jesus has done for you, to believe that Jesus died for you. That is the gospel. That is the good news, that although we cannot earn any favor with God, Jesus earned it for us, and we receive it. We receive that grace by faith. Let's bow our heads, and we'll pray together. Jacob's life does work like a mirror for us. Sometimes when I read the Bible for myself, it, it seems like God is pointing out things in my life that I need to understand and learn, humbling me. I wonder, I wonder, is God doing that for you as well? It could be, and in the quietness of this moment, perhaps in some solitude, being alone with your thoughts, you just admit to yourself, I have really done everything I can to make life work my own way. And I'm beginning to realize it doesn't work that way. God is bringing me to a crisis, which I must recognize that His grace is not something I could coerce from Him, but it's something only that I could receive by faith. My friend, if that's you, I want to direct your attention to Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can save you. He's the only one that can give you a new name, even if you've been trying to establish your own name, your own identity. And what you must do is confess that you are unworthy and believe in Him and trust in Him. For the rest of us, those who are believing in Jesus Christ, don't we tend to slip into the self-reliant way of thinking? Don't we tend to assume and begin to assume that life works best when we work everything to our own advantage? We too need the reminder to walk by faith and to receive God's blessing not by our efforts but by His grace. Our Father, thank You for what You are doing in our hearts. I pray that the power of Your Word would continue in our lives as Christ is exalted among us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This time I'll ask Matt to come and lead us in a song. For those of us who are Christians,